Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Everyone knows the Middle East is a very troublesome place. Conventional wisdom is that there are good guys and bad guys. The line of demarcation between the two is pretty clear. For example, the U.S. has a long and solid connection with Saudi Arabia. Most people have a vague impression that the Saudis are among the more moderate forces in that turbulent region. But as the song said, it ain't necessarily so. No question the Saudis are a major power in the region, largely because of their oil uh, and their military. But it is, is it still in our interest to keep such close ties with the Saudis? Could it be that the Saudis are among the biggest troublemakers and the most brutal regimes in the area despite a long-standing friendship? Could our conventional wisdom be wrong? Well, I'm very pleased and honored, I must say, to have as our guest for this segment, Medea Benjamin. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for having me on. Cited by the L.A. Times as one of the high-profile members of the peace movement, the co-founder of Code Pink has become famous for fearlessly tackling head-on subjects most of us would rather avoid. Sometimes she does so in person, as during President Obama's speech at the National Defense University or during a reception for the drone manufacturers and members of Congress, or in Cairo, where she was assaulted by police. Uh, Our guest, uh, Medea Benjamin, is currently on a book tour promoting Kingdom of the Unjust behind the U.S.-Saudi connections about the nature of the relationship between us and Saudi Arabia. It's got seven chapters, followed by a look at prospects for change. With extremism spreading across the globe, a reduced U.S. need for uh, Saudi oil, and a thawing of U.S. relations with Iran, The question she looks at is, what should American policy be toward Saudi Arabia? Uh, Again, Medeath Benjamin, thank you for being with us. What was your purpose in writing this book? Why did it need to be written? I realized as somebody who is part of the activist movement trying to stop wars and looking at the uh, spread of violence throughout the Middle East, that one of the key issues in the unraveling of all of this conflict is to recognize how toxic the U.S.-Saudi relationship has been, how um, bad the Saudis have been in in promoting and spreading extremism, and the need to separate U.S. policy from this uh, giving diplomatic cover and support and weapons to the Saudis. Yeah, we have not uh, really looked at that uh, so far. The Saudis 
along with Israel, have been the U.S.'s most reliable allies in the Middle East for a really long time. I think most Americans see them as a force for moderation. I think that's the impression that most people have. Is that your read, too, that most people see them as a force for moderation? And is this not accurate? Well, neither country is a force for moderation, and both countries have led us into uh, tremendous boondoggles in the Middle East. Certainly our support for Israel to the tune of over $3 billion a month, uh, a year, uh, for military, quote, aid, uh, has enabled the Israelis to continue to oppress the Palestinians, and certainly the U.S. support for... um, the Saudis has enabled the Saudis not only to spread extremism around the world, uh, to be presently con- uh, involved in war crimes in Yemen, but also to keep their own citizenry oppressed and to prop up this uh, dictatorship uh, that can't last for too long, and who knows what will come out of that if we don't support the reform elements within Saudi Arabia. So um, right. the, the, there is certainly a mistaken notion about Israel and Saudi Arabia. So how is it that, and again, is it your read, like it is mine, that most people, you know, don't pay a lot of attention to this area, quite frankly. Most people do have the impression that the Saudis are a, a force for moderation. I, you know, I, I'm not sure where that comes from. What's your sense of that? Is, and is that impression that you've had as you travel around that people think that? Well, I'm certainly talking to a lot of self-selected people. Oh, true. Uh, the people <laughs> that I've talked to don't think of Saudi Arabia as a source for moderation. But I don't think most Americans do. Uh, of course, most Americans don't think about Saudi Arabia at all. True. Yeah. <laughs> which is in itself problematic. Uh, I think people might recognize that the Saudis indeed are um, are, are a troublesome ally, but an ally nonetheless, uh-huh. because uh, who else are we going to be allied with? But if you dig beneath the surface, you see that, um, I mean, the uh, 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Yes. Uh, the Saudis have been spending billions of dollars spreading their intolerant form of uh, Wahhabism around the world uh, that has become the ideological underpinnings of groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and lone wolves who uh, attack people from uh, Paris to Belgium to uh, places throughout the Middle East. So it's important to uh, unravel the Saudi uh, it, it, not only the government itself What's behind this government? Why are these um, kingdoms, why is this kingdom still in power Mm. and its relationship with these radical clerics? And then why does the U.S., that's supposed to be fighting terrorism, uh, ally itself with the country that is most responsible for the spread of extremism? And, you know, that, that seems to go against, again, conventional wisdom. My sense is most Americans have come to believe that Iran is the bad guy, that Iran supports global terrorism. Do they not? Is that is that not accurate? Isn't Iran more of a backer of, of uh, global terrorism than Saudi Arabia? 
Well, you're right in that a lot of Americans think that because that is a line put out by um, a lot of our government officials. I go to these hearings in Congress all the time, and I'm constantly hearing Congress people talk about Iran as the you know the evil country right. that is spreading extremism, and it's just not the case. Um, Saudi Arabia is the evil country that is spreading extremism. I don't uh, defend the government of Iran, but it certainly is um, a more moderate government than the Saudi government, and the Saudis have been involved in literally uh, spreading Wahhabi extremism for decades now. I was in Pakistan, uh, I've been there several times, but mm. years ago when I first realized all of these madrasas or schools that were set up by the Saudis that preached hatred for the West. Um, I've been in northern Africa and have seen how Saudi mosques have been set up with the imams being sent to Saudi Arabia to uh, learn the Saudi intolerant version of Islam and go back uh, and preach it in their own countries. Even Barack Obama himself commented on how the very tolerant version of Islam that was practiced in Indonesia, where he spent part of his childhood, um, has been corrupted by the Saudi influence. So you see it all over the world, and it certainly is way, way more the Saudis than Iran. And in fact, if there was a more... Uh, a, a natural ally of the U.S. in the Middle East, it would be Iran, not Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's the impression that I have been getting lately. It certainly, again, goes against the uh, prevailing uh, winds these days. If you just turned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Very honored to have with us Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, whose new book is called uh, Kingdom of the Unjust Behind U.S.-Saudi Connections. What is the origin of the strange alliance between two countries that seemingly have very little in common? Is it all about oil? Well, a lot of it is about oil, especially in the beginning. Uh, And going back to the time of World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt meeting with the Saudi king, uh, realizing that the U.S. needed Saudi oil and saying, you sell us the oil and we will provide you with protection uh, that went on for decades, and in fact, it's gone on for 12 different U.S. administrations, both Democratic and Republican. But the times have changed. The U.S. produces a lot more of its own oil. It gets oil from different sources. Um, we only get about 12% of our oil from Saudi Arabia and could be getting it from other sources. In the meantime, what has happened uh, is that the Saudis have become the number one purchaser of U.S. weapons. In fact, our weapons industry has become dependent on the Saudis to the tune of just under, in the Obama administration, $110 billion worth of weapons. That's just a massive amount. Um, You had mentioned earlier in the show our relationship with Israel. Uh, In the case of Israel, we give them the money to buy U.S. weapons, but they get about $3 billion a year. So multiply that by eight years of the Obama administration, that's $24 billion worth of weapons. The Saudis are over five times that. So, yes, our weapons industry is now dependent on purchase by this very repressive regime using our weapons to 
um, commit war crimes in places like Yemen. And we, we've gotten the image here in America of ISIS, the brutal ISIS beheading people and doing horrible things like that. What do you know about life for the average person in Saudi Arabia? My sense is that there's the royal family, which has been very generous with its wealth. But if the oil wealth starts to go down, uh, I wonder, <laughs> you know, are, are the Saudi royal family, are they afraid of their own people? And uh, what's life like there as compared to, uh, you know, other uh, uh, countries and other uh, power structures like, like ISIS? I mean, they do beheadings there too, right? Well, yes. And if you are going to go up against the royal family, um, you'll find yourself uh, in prison or beheaded. There is no freedom of speech, no freedom of expression, no freedom of assembly, no political parties, no election for a president, no election for a, a Congress. Uh, things are run exclusively by the royal family and the clerics. Uh, if you want to blog about uh, questions you have um, about living under a theocratic monarchy, um, you might, like uh, one political prisoner, Rafe Badawi, find yourself sentenced to first to death, um, then lessened to 10 years in prison and a thousand lashes. Uh, if you are a lawyer and want to defend somebody like Rafe Badawi, uh, like his lawyer, Walid Abulkhair, uh, you might find yourself in prison for 15 years for defending a blogger. Uh, this is the kind of thing that happens when you uh, not, not, uh, join a um, underground armed militia. Mm -hmm. No, when you are speaking about nonviolent reform, so the Saudi government deals very harshly uh, with anybody who tries to change the system through nonviolent means. Yeah. Okay. And there are good buddies over there. What What's your sense? Why, over a period of decade after decade? across various presidential administrations, Republican and Democrat, the United States, why have we consistently supported a regime shown again and again to be one of the most powerful forces working against American interests? What, what do you make of that? Well, I explained the um, evolution just, from oil to weapon sales, uh, but there's a, other pieces of that. One is that our economies are now intertwined so that Ooh. huge profits from petrodollars have been recycled in large part into the U.S. economy. The Saudis owning everything from prime real estate in the U.S. to mm. uh, 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 companies on the U.S. stock market to hundreds of billions of dollars in U.S. treasuries um, to startup companies like Uber that just got an infusion of $3.5 billion from the Saudis. Yeah. Um, wow. So uh, there's those economic ties. And um, then there is the, uh, uh, the uh, I would say, the familiarity that comes with 12 different administrations wow. uh, dealing with the Saudis. Um, hmm. And the... Enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. The Saudis and the U.S. have been hostile towards Iran. Um, the Saudis have worked with the CIA over the years when mm -hmm. the CIA has wanted to invade, arm, or otherwise 
interfere in other countries and um, U.S. administrations have not wanted to go to Congress for approval. What have they done? They've gone to the Saudis and asked the Saudis to uh, fund U.S. Uh, military adventures. Yeah. It goes back to the days of Iran-Contra, wow. um, but it's also true in Afghanistan with the Saudis funding the Mujahideen. It goes to the invasion of Iran, uh, I mean of Iraq. Uh, where the Saudis gave uh, $50 billion for the U.S. to invade Iraq. So, yes, a lot of military um, adventures funded by the Saudis. I see. So our CIA, our military, doesn't need our money. They have Saudi money. Is is that some of what you say? Yes, so they can keep these things away from the American public, (laughs) avoid the messy issues like uh, like the Constitution, Congress that is supposed to... Uh, approve or disapprove of uh, U.S. going to war. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that Constitution, it's so, oh, it just complicates things. Who needs it after all? Well, <laughs> it's amazing to me what you're talking about here. And I have to say, if you listeners don't uh, aren't familiar with Medea Benjamin, you talk about brave. I mean, my goodness. And I've heard it said that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Well, this this person, our guest today, is uh, extremely patriotic in that sense because the the bravery, the courage just knocks my socks off, can I tell you. And it's fi- all fighting for good good stuff. I'm very pleased to have a, have Medea Benjamin with us today. Now, what what is the Obama administration and the presumably Clinton administration proposing regarding the sale of more weapons to Saudi Arabia? Well, the Obama administration has been responsible for record sales to Saudi Arabia, and a lot of that when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and had to approve those sales. Um, so... Uh, there has been a very cozy relationship between this administration and the Saudis, despite some disagreements like the Iran nuclear deal. I just wrote a new piece that I'm putting out today on uh, another connection with Hillary Clinton. Um, There's been more publicity out these days around the uh, Clinton's uh, taking of money from right. uh, foreign governments, including the Saudis, oh, yeah. that have given the Clintons between 10 and $25 million. Um, but the piece I'm writing today focuses on, on an aspect that hasn't really come out in the media, and that's the uh, connection to one of the lobby firms, the Podesta Group, that is a registered foreign agent for the Saudi government, and the head of that um, is the brother of Hillary Clinton's um, campaign chair, uh, Tony Podesta, uh-huh. is the head of the Podesta group. John Podesta is Hillary Clinton's campaign chair. Together, the brothers formed the Podesta group that now represents the Saudi government. Uh, so it is amazing to see the ties between uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton and the Saudis uh, she was very proud of herself in um, 2011 for having uh, helped to negotiate a, a $30 billion weapon sale to the Saudis yeah. uh, with her staff calling it a great Christmas present for them oh because it happened on December 31st. <sighs> wow, that's, that's amazing. So they gave all this money 
to the Clinton Foundation, which we'll be actually discussing on the second half hour of uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, the Clinton Foundation. Uh, and it was one of her highest priorities to get them one of the biggest arm deals ever. It's amazing. How concerned are you, Medea Benjamin, about a Clinton presidency policy toward the Saudis and how that might affect not only U.S. relations in the area, but peace itself? Oh, I'm very worried about Hillary on all kinds of levels. I mean, she is working uh, with the Saudis on the um, it, around uh, Syria uh, in calling for a no-fly zone in Syria that would further entrench the U.S. in this terrible war in Syria. Um, she is uh, known as a hawk for her years as Secretary of State um, and even pushing further than the Pentagon oftentimes in oh, terms yes. of U.S. military intervention. Yes. And uh, I certainly don't feel good about her or Donald Trump uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. And specifically around Saudi Arabia, it is scary to see uh, all these ties. And, uh, and ironic when you think of Hillary Clinton as the woman who will finally break the glass ceiling, the ultimate glass ceiling right. in terms of woman, women. Right. And yet... She has this very cozy relationship with the only country in the world where women are not allowed to drive, where women are treated like minors from the time they're born till the time they die uh, because they live under a guardianship system where a male yeah. has to uh, give them the approval for uh, who they're going to marry, where they're going to go to school, if they're going to get a passport and travel, um, all significant decisions in their lives. Uh, so, yes, quite sad and ironic. Incredibly um, ironic. That she takes money from and uh, does the Big diplomatic cover for such a regime. Uh, absolutely amazing. The, the irony is kind of sickening, actually. There's the whole uh, war in Yemen. How, aside from, I mean, my, my sense is that the Saudis... Uh, put it, they try to create the context that they're fighting a proxy war against the bad Iranians in Yemen. How do you think, aside from any moral issues, which are significant because a lot of Yemenis, innocent people are dying there, how does that affect American interests in the Middle East by us supporting the Saudis in this war uh, that they're making on Yemen? Well, it puts the, the U.S. in the middle of what is seen as very much a uh, a sectarian conflict that we shouldn't be involved in, an internal conflict in another country that uh, we shouldn't be involved in, but also the Saudi intervention in Yemen's internal conflict has actually led to the rise of uh, groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS inside of Yemen because um, the, the violence yeah. and the chaos creates the breeding grounds for even more extremist groups. And so that will come back to haunt us as well. Wow. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're all involved in that, I hope. And our guest today is uh, certainly an outstanding member of uh, taking that on, Keeping Democracy Alive, Medea Benjamin. We're talking about her new book. She's on a book tour across the country. The book is Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi connections. Um, why do you say the time is right now for a revaluation 
of our close ties to the Saudi re- regime. Don't we need stable allies in the region? And they are one. Why, why in particular is, is now a good time for a reevaluation of uh, our relations with the Saudis? Well, it's a good time for several reasons. One is because we have created some distance by signing the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, and that gives us a chance to improve our relationships with Iran uh, and have a more balanced uh, than relationship between those two countries. Um, the other is because we don't rely on the Saudis so much for the oil anymore. Right. Um, Another is that the Saudis themselves, because of the low price of oil, have been having their own economic crisis, uh, and this is uh, a good time for uh, the people inside Saudi Arabia who are trying to push for change to actually have uh, more of a chance to do that, Uh since the Saudi government can't buy off the goodwill of the Saudi people anymore by uh-huh. continuing to um, give away uh, subsidies um, and other goodies to its right. population because it just doesn't have the money. Hmm. Um, and I would say uh, my particular goal with this book and a 200-city speaking tour that I'm wow. just embarking on Jeez. is to educate people about why the U.S.-Saudi relationship is so dangerous and uh, why we have to stand up. And one thing that is happening right now is that the Obama administration has just authorized a new round of weapon sales to Saudi Arabia at a time when the Saudis are uh, committing all kinds of crimes in Yemen, yes. including hitting residential neighborhoods, schools, uh, Doctors Without Borders Hospital factories. And this is causing, for the first time, some of our Congress people to actually stand up and say, Uh maybe enough is enough. And yesterday, uh, 63 of them sent a letter to the administration saying, uh, we have 30 days as mandated by uh, law to stop this weapon sales. And uh, we think that Congress should actually stand up and do that. So we're trying to get people to call their Congress people, to call their senators, and say, stop the weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. And we're excited that there's um, movement on this at the moment, and people like uh, Senator Chris Murphy from uh-huh. Connecticut uh-huh. and Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, uh-huh. uh, who are leading the charge in the Senate, and then quite a number of people, both Republicans and Democrats, leading the charge in the House. Wow, that's that's good to hear. It's nice to have good news every now and then. I and I wanted to mention this really grabbed me and your acknowledgments at the end of the book. You write, "I give deep gratitude to my Saudi friends who helped me gain some understanding of their complicated country. Unfortunately, many of them cannot be publicly acknowledged for their own safety." That really says a lot. So, is there a particular number uh, on the uh, on the uh, legislation, uh, or should people just call their members of Congress and senators say, please, well, what should they say? Yes, they should call their members of Congress and Senate to say, no weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. And their uh, congressperson will know what that means, because uh-huh. uh, right now 
um, we are waiting for legislation. There are just resolutions, and um, uh, the legislation will be coming soon. I see. So, yes, just call and say, no weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Very simple message. One more quick question. I know over history there have been quite a few rather corrupt, repressive regimes that would not be in power without the U.S., uh, South Vietnam, etc., etc., etc. Would they be in power with the Saudi royal family? Are they that dependent on the U.S.? Or, or uh, you know, could they survive without us helping them out? Well, it's a good question. I think uh, long ago, if you go back into the uh, 1940s and 50s, they would not have survived without the U.S. Um, today, they have a lot of firepower, thanks to us. Um, they have uh, a lot of yeah. quote, friends around the world, thanks to the money that they've uh, put out. Uh, for example, just in Egypt, the repressive coup regime of General Sisi um, is a good ally of the Saudis because the Saudis have given them billions of dollars. Uh, so now um, they have uh, they have even bought themselves a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. I mean, think just Whoa. ironic that is. Um, so today it's a lot more complicated yeah. and a lot harder to get them out of power. And as I say in the book, um, from the Saudis I've talked to, they don't want to see a violent overthrow of this uh, repressive government because they're afraid of what would sure. come after that. Look yeah. just at uh, Iraq or, or Syria or Libya. Right. Uh, and so they want to see reforms happening. And that's who we have to be supporting, the human rights activists, the women trying to overthrow the guardianship system, uh -huh. uh, the lawyers. Um, there's plenty of wonderful Saudis that really deserve our support, um, not the Saudi regime. Right. Thank you so much for being with us, Medea Benjamin. Uh, Code Pink is one website uh, people can go to. The book is called, once again, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connections. Thanks so much for being with us, Medea Benjamin. Thank you. Thanks so much for having David Bowie, The Secret Life of Arabia. Well, we're going to talk about uh, more of the issues that we were just speaking about. One of the essential, basic, vital aspects of a democracy, of course, is openness of government. Secrecy and doing the people's business behind closed doors 
is a very different form of government. That's not democracy. Any appearance of a government official providing special favors to a foreign interest in exchange for uh, them donating to that official's personal charity, uh, that it looks bad. <laughs> it looks bad. Very bad. Money, especially foreign money, is not supposed to be able to buy influence. But in the last few weeks, the matter of the Clinton Foundation has come into increasing focus. It certainly appears to be a case of pay-for-play, where foreign governments somehow decide, out of the goodness of their hearts, to donate tens of millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation, and somehow, miraculously, they get great weapons deals seemingly in return. Of course, it could be coincidence. It could be quid pro quo. Now, if Democrats saw this kind of thing being done by Republicans in government, they'd be calling it a huge scandal and screaming about it. The fact is, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, places like Saudi Arabia donated between 10 and $25 million to the Clinton Foundation and somehow got great weapons deals. Kuwait invested between 5 and $10 million, also got terrific weapons deals through the State Department that Hillary Clinton ran, United Arab Emirates, Sultan of Oman, the Kingdom of Bahrain, the Embassy of Algeria, the State of Qatar, on and on. Of course, it could be mere coincidence that they donated to the Clinton Foundation and then reaped such rewards from the State Department. But even Hillary Clinton recognizes that it does not look good. No question, the foundation is doing great work. They are dealing with AIDS, water purification, and the like. That's for sure. But somehow the idea of dictatorial heads of Arab states caring so deeply about poverty and disease stretches credulity to the breaking point. It seems to be in conflict with everything we know about those governments. Some staunch Democrats say, look at the source of the criticisms, always just right-wing groups like Judicial Watch, and they dismiss any concerns as just being, oh, partisan attacks. To help us distinguish between legitimate from not-so-legitimate concerns, I'm very pleased to have with us Paul Glastris, editor-in-chief of The Washington Monthly, who was also President Bill Clinton's chief speechwriter from September 1998 to the end of his presidency in early 2001. Before 1998, Glastris was a correspondent for U U.S. News and World Report. Thanks very much for being with us, Paul Glastris. Hillary herself recently said with regard to the foundation issue, quote, there's a lot of smoke and there's no fire. Does that really seem plausible? Well, it's not a question of whether it's plausible or not. It's a factual question, right? And we've now uh, had a whole bunch of investigations of the factual question. And they're really, there's two factual questions. Uh, did donors to the Clinton Foundation get access that they otherwise wouldn't have or shouldn't have gotten? And two, did they get any favors, any policy changes, anything for their access? Right. And so now we've had this Judicial Watch lawsuit, which dredged up all kinds of detailed emails uh, to, to the, uh, that go to that, those questions. And we've had uh, a numerous sort of uh, press accounts of uh, those emails. And we've also had this big story in the AP, the Associated Press, right. that matched Clinton's uh, 
uh, meetings schedule from her calendars, which they were able to get through Freedom of Information, with donors of the Clinton Foundation. And so th- this is a testable proposition as to, you know, whether, these t- whether she violated these two things, whether people who were donors got extra access and whether those with access got any favors. And the bottom line is that no. The answer to both questions is no. Um, from everything we can tell from all these investigations, uh, it's pretty clear that the donors who got access got access because they were people who would have gotten access anyway. There were right. a Holocaust survivor, Ellie Wiesel, for instance, or it was uh, microfinance uh, and Nobel Prize, you know, microfinance entrepreneur and, and, and development specialist and Nobel Prize winner, um, Mohammed Yunus. Um, Whereas others who were donors who asked for access didn't get it, and, and in many cases, you know, rightly so. And, you know, everything that has been published has shown that not only did they not get extra access, they didn't get any favors. Really? Uh, so really? so um, that's the reality. And, well, I think- you know, it still leaves open... <clears throat> This appearance issue, which yes. is not nothing, yes. but it's, it's what, what's left of the whole investigation so far is only appearances, as far as I can tell. Well, one, it, it's, it's not clear to me anyway, and to a lot of people, whether or not, you know, as, as you say, I mean, people who got access to Hillary Clinton probably already had access to Hillary Clinton, that's for sure. But a lot of questions remain. For example... Uh, the Crown Prince of Bahrain gave the Clinton administration, uh, Clinton Foundation, not administration yet, although I expect it will be, but gave the Clinton Foundation $32 million. The New York Times of August 30th declared the Crown Prince used foundation channels, used foundation channels to seek access to Mrs. Clinton. After that, Bahrain saw a major increase in arms exports authorizations from the Clinton State Department. At a time, the Bahrain was facing the Arab Spring uprisings and was accused of human rights violations and crushing those protests. Is that mere coincidence? I mean, is that not a little troubling, 32? It's it's, it's not mere coincidence. It's not a coincidence so much as uh, a a correlation, not a cause. You, You have to ask yourself the question, why would Bahrain get an increase in... Arms uh, right during uh, sales right at this time yes and what role would the Secretary of State have had in it and who what are the other players uh, who are the other players in that and it, if you just go back and look at contemporaneous reporting in the New York Times you'll see that the you know administration was jacking up its arms sales to all the Sunni Arab states uh, because they were furious at the U.S. for opening up. Uh, negotiations with Iran, um, and in order to keep those negotiations going uh, without upsetting uh, the Sunni partners that have been partners with the United States for good or ill for decades, um, the administration made the decision to sell them more arms. Now, you can agree or disagree with that policy, but that wasn't Hillary Clinton's policy. She had a piece of it. The uh, State Department is in charge of sort of signing off on the permits to sell the arms, but the State Department doesn't make that decision in a vacuum. They don't initiate 
the requests for increased sales of arms. That comes out of the Defense Department and is never going to be okayed without White House support. So Hillary Clinton was at the table, but you'd have to, if you think that Bahrain's gift of uh, money to the Clinton Foundation had some effect, you'd have to then say, well, why would the the Defense Department, why would the uh, Secretary of Defense give a hoot about what Bahrain gave to the Clinton Foundation? That's just not a credible argument. However... you know, you can you can sort of say, oh, look, this happened and then this happened, therefore they, the one caused the other. But there's just really no evidence whatsoever that that's the case and overwhelming evidence that it's not the case. But there is, uh, I mean, I can't argue with that about the Defense Department. They, I mean, you know, they're in the arms business. They love to sell weapons everywhere. Uh, but it has to be, it's required that the State Department has to authorize weapons sales. And this was at an interesting time, shall we say, when uh, Bahrain was fighting against the Arab Spring uprising, when most people in America certainly supported the Arab Spring uprising. So, uh, you know, the, the State Department is not out of it entirely. And as you say, yes, the president has to authorize such things. When it came to the uh, uh, terrible decision to make war in Libya, Yes, the president went along with that. The Pentagon fought very heavily against uh, making war in Libya. The, 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 the president said that was probably the biggest mistake of his presidency, that he went along with the 51%. That was Hillary Clinton doing that. Now, I have no, th- with regard to the Clinton Foundation, I don't know if there's any connection at all. My guess is probably not. But the State Department is the chief regulator of arms exports. Do we know how many of the governments that gave big to the Clinton Foundation during that time that happened to give to the Clinton Foundation saw significant increases in arms exports authorizations from the State Department. And how can that not look very bad? I mean, there's a lot of governments that, in fact, gave a lot of money to the Clinton Foundation. How can it not look bad? How can there be, as she said, smoke but no fire? Well, I think I just answered your question, Bert. I mean, the State Department doesn't make that decision. But State Department uh, um, says yes or no to the permitting. You know, when the the whole debate about the Keystone Pipeline was happening, yes, and you could tell the White House didn't want to make a decision, yes, right, yes, and and they hid behind the State Department's um, process of deciding on the environmental consequences, yes, Um, and you know, lo and behold, eventually the. State Department they concluded that, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, they weren't going to issue that permit. Right. Um, you know, it would be naive in the extreme, and I know you don't believe this, but for you to say that it was the State Department <laughs> that made the decision about the Keystone Pipeline. Well, they did make a decision approving it. They did, uh, in uh, fact, approve it under Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's State Department did approve it. The White House went, went uh, against that. You know, and at an earlier stage, yes. the ultimate environmental sign-off had to come from a group within the State Department, which, in the end, didn't give that. You know, ruled against it. So, so my point is, you're mm. ascribing to Hillary Clinton's State Department powers that it didn't have. Well, that's debatable. As a way of explaining this co- this this coincidence as causality, and it, it I don't think makes any sense. Well, we don't have... Uh, it appears that way if you want to frame it that way, but that the facts don't 
support your your contentions. Well, I don't think the facts are are clear either way, supporting either my contention or <laughs> your contention. Aren't very clear. Just go back and look at the contemporaneous press reports. The oil companies There's gave a, ample evidence that this was the administration's broader policy, that they had a policy of increasing arms sales to Sunni nations. Yes, that's true. As a way of uh, fighting against the Shia, bolstering their support. Yeah. At a time when they were attempting to open up uh, negotiations with Iran, that, that 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 that's not a dispute about. No, there isn't. You're right. There's no question and, about that. So wh- why not just t- take the the what was happening at the time, the evidence of the times, as the simple explanation? Why concoct a bigger explanation? Oh, I don't. Well, going back to the oil companies and the uh, uh, Keystone Pipeline, they. The oil. This is a fact too. The oil companies gave big to the Clinton Foundation as they were lobbying the State Department for passage of the tar sands pipeline, and they won approval. Could that really be a coincidence? But I mean, they, come on. In the end, didn't win approval. But in the end, no. But they did win approval early on. I don't have on. any evidence on your side. You're looking at um, two different things, and you've got no evidence of a, of a connection. It, 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 and my point is, we now have lots of examples of the, e- of the actual emails and the actual meetings, and we can connect that with the actual outcomes. And in each of the cases where we have the emails and we have the meetings, we can see that nothing, no favors were traded. And you're saying, well, beyond the examples that the press and the Judicial Watch have come up with, there may be other examples. I didn't say that at all. That's ridiculous. Maybe. Hey, I, no. I, you know I didn't say that. That's putting words into my mouth that didn't come out of my mouth. Let's be factual here. One, you know, getting beyond the, by, the, the appearance of pay for play, a pretty much universal concern with all charities is cost effectiveness. Now, there's no question the Clinton Foundation has done some tremendous work in fighting AIDS and water purification, things like that. Often, with many charities, there's high overhead, staff traveling high on the hog, <coughs> while not as much trickles down to the intended recipients. There have been rumors, and you may know this because I frankly don't, that 10% of what they take in, the Clinton Foundation takes in, actually goes to charitable work, 90% to charities, advertising, travel expenses. Do you know about the veracity of these concerns? I actually don't. You know, I have seen those, those reports. And I have not uh, been able to verify them. Um, I have also seen it reported that they have a, you know, I've seen the opposite reported. The opposite, the the number that I've seen is they have a 15% overhead, um, which is on the low side for Mm. a charity. In fact, that that number comes from a ratings, a, a, a nonprofit ratings agency of, uh, of other nonprofits, so um, I don't know the answer, right. but I, I uh, there's a lot floating around out there, and and I some would personally true, love to know more so would I. Uh, about uh, how successful the Clinton administra- uh, the Clinton Foundation was, um, what uh, on the ground good they did, the efficiency of it or lack of it. I think those are all very interesting stories, and have wanted. The press to cover them more. Yeah, um, they're perfectly legitimate. As by the way, all of these stories are perfectly legitimate to look at. I, yeah. I don't have a problem with looking at the arms sales and asking the questions you're asking. 
or looking at the Clinton donors and asking the questions people are asking. What's upsetting to me, and ought to be upsetting to your listeners, is when the answers come in, and they show that, as they have in every single case we have recorded, that Hillary Clinton and her staff did the right thing. They didn't take the meetings with the people that they shouldn't have taken the meetings with, and they did take the meetings with the people that they should have taken the meetings with. Well, what you they just... didn't do favors for people they shouldn't have done favors for, and they did do favors for the people that the American public would want you to do favors for. Well, that's obviously uh, opinion. I mean, you know, deciding what... It's opinion. What's... It's not opinion, Bert. This is no. what's in the reporting. The opinion... This the... Is... What I hear from opinion is you're saying that they shouldn't have done, you know, business with other people. They should have done business with. That's that's a perfectly legitimate well, opinion, so, but it's so not. It was a big story in the in the L.A. Times yesterday about a <clears throat> Lebanese ethnic gentleman who's Niger- in Nigeria, who's a billionaire, who's got some sketchy uh, connections via the Christian community in Lebanon with Hamas or Hezbollah, rather, and has been on and off, uh, on and off uh, uh, terror watch lists. He, he was on for sure. a while, then he was able to get off, and then... Well, obviously, uh, they he, shouldn't anyway, do business he, with him. He had given to every, everybody under the sun, he'd given, I think, $10 million or something to the Clinton Foundation. He then asked favors of Hillary Clinton's staff, um, he, you know, asked well, obviously, for a meeting... Uh, to talk about what he knew uh, that was going on in Lebanon, and it was actually some—he's you know quite knowledgeable about the internal politics of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm guessing instead of getting a meeting, uh, you know, the emails show that Huma Abedin, Clinton's sort of number right-hand person, said, um, "I'll connect you with a retired ambassador from Lebanon," um, or what? that's what he told the go-between. She told the go-between. And then nothing actually was ever done. He never got the meeting. So here's a case that was just in the papers yesterday where, you know, you have this, you have this donor. Uh, sure. And, and he asks for a favor. He oh, asks for a meeting, go. and he gets nothing. But still, that's one that's, case. That's not, a, that's, that's not, a, that's not a, an opinion. No. That's a reported fact. The opinion there's that... dozens of those. Well, sure. Fact, but but there are also... The pieces wait, and find you me let an me... example of a meeting that took place that shouldn't have t- taken place by any, you know, reasonable you know, uh, criteria. I, 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 I think I, you'll find it. Your skills at working as a chief speechwriter for President Clinton are showing, and it's, they're impressive. So, sir, I've been, I've been editing. I've, I'm a 30-year professional journalist. I oh, I can tell. I've been doing so for 15 years. I appreciate that. A, and one could, one could still... before, but I've... I'm a one could still question an editor. if I may some people could still question whether the United Arab Emirates the Sultan of Oman the Kingdom of Bahrain the Embassy of Algeria the state of Qatar while she is Secretary of State did I mean, the appearance is a little bit odd there I mean why is she saying now that well she won't do this anymore if she gets elected what I don't you know it's a question a lot of people have why was it going on while she was Secretary of State if she's not going to well, do it a as good, president that's a perfectly Thank legitimate you. question and and think about how to how, how you go about answering. Who do, I, I, I think that um, anybody looking at this would say, shouldn't it have been that as Secretary of State, she would have somehow told the foundation you you know it, it would look bad if you took money from foreign governments 
so don't do that uh, while I'm Secretary of State. That would have been a politically more savvy thing to do. Yes. Right? Then yes. nobody could raise that question. Right. Um, it turns out that the rules by which she became Secretary of State and her behavior and all that and what the Clinton Foundation would do were spelled out in a memorandum of understanding with the Obama White House. I doubt and, she broke any rules. Uh, you know, I doubt she broke any rules, but it's still, it's, it's, it's the appearance, no, no, I it's mean, the timing. And, and, and so she didn't break any rules. Right. So the, the, that's not the, issue. the decision was one that Barack Obama made with Hillary Clinton that she could be Secretary of State while the Clinton Foundation was accepting money from foreign governments. He, you know, you can look back and say that was a dumb thing for President Obama to do. It was a dumb thing for Hillary Clinton to do yes. because it raised the appearance of conflict of interest. So, yes, that's a legitimate t- t- uh, argument to take. Here's another legitimate argument. Sure. When Bahrain, when, when Haiti saw this devastating earth- earthquake that killed tens of thousands of people, yeah. Bahrain, which at that point I'm pretty sure had never given any money to the Clinton Foundation, immediately offered $10 million. And that money went to all kinds of valuable uh, emergency uh, uh, services and equipment that you know, arguably saved a ton of lives. Uh, had the foundation said we're not taking money from right. foreign governments, that's money the Clinton Foundation wouldn't have had to do its good work. And they do so good work. Balance. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the appearance, if not the reality, of conflict versus the reality of the good work that the Clinton administration was able to do with the foreign money that it got. And there's and, still questions. You know, reasonable people can disagree yes. on that, but that's, really the, that's the, the moral uh, quandary yeah. about that. That's the political quandary about that. Do we care more about the appearance of conflict of interest or I'm more about uh, getting good things done on the ground by a charity? And it's it, a lot of people in Haiti, actually, since you brought up the subject, would like to know what happened to the hundreds of millions of dollars that Clinton's foundation collected for new residences intended to help after earthquake. Very, very few, hardly anything has been built there. That's a fact. I don't have the answer to that. I, I just, you know, the, the New York Times... Well, I, you know, a big investigative piece done by the Washington Post looking into... Yeah, and there's problems uh, there. Every possible... Uh, inquiry into the Clinton Foundation's role in Haiti and its development and rebuilding. And uh, other than a number of individuals saying they, they thought the Clinton administration didn't do enough, they really found nothing that the Clinton administration, the Clinton Foundation did wrong and plenty to praise. Among other things, Bill Clinton himself made 70 trips Seventy trips right. to Haiti. Yeah. Now imagine a former president making seventy trips anywhere, much less a devastated country like Haiti. And so, when you say lost, you didn't spend hundreds of millions or whatever. I, 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 you know, there's very little housing built there. That. There's I'd very little housing building. The sourcing on that. Well, there's, uh, we can find that out another time, but my understanding is that people have been amazed how little actual housing has been there. You know, and I have, you know, in defense of, of Hillary Clinton, uh, 
there, I have no question that the attacks on Hillary Clinton regarding Benghazi were just partisan, and I think that actually helped her quite a bit. Some of her defenders look at that and insist any and all concerns are just like that, mere partisans' attacks without substance. Is the concern about the Clinton Foundation merely part of that pattern, do you think, uh, Paul Glastris? Well, I, I would say just as there were legitimate questions in the early stages of the Benghazi thing that required journalists and, you know, in, 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 that, in that case, a bipartisan commission to look into, yeah. uh, there are legitimate questions with the Clinton Foundation. The woman's running for the most powerful office in the world. Yeah. We need to ask those questions and do those investigations. And- Benghazi... The problem was, when the answers came back that Hillary didn't do anything wrong, the State Department pretty much played it straight, yeah. they went with the intelligence they had at the time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the t- Republicans refused I know. to believe the facts. Yeah. And so they continued to say, well, there's more questions, and there's more questions, and there's more questions, and let's do more studies and more yeah. inquiries and more subpoenas. And it helped Hillary Clinton. the danger here with the Clinton Foundation is, now that we've had some pretty big inquiries, some pretty big investigative pieces, some big court battles where all of these emails are out, we're getting the information back. And as in Benghazi, it's showing you there's nothing there. And the question for people is, are you going to accept the facts that have been presented, or are you going to continue to say there's questions, there's questions, we need more investigations? Well, and, you know, that, that, that's sort of where... This is right now. Are, are well, the New York Times people going to accept the facts that have been presented, or are they or not? The New York Times, in their editorial of August 30th, said, "Is the Clinton Foundation a symbol of the Clintons' operational opacity?" I think that's an interesting question. I appreciate your being here. I'm a little surprised at how the Clinton campaign seems to be flat-footed. They should have known about this coming all this time. She's still going to win. Thank goodness she has. Well, it's scary to have Donald Trump as, a, as an opponent, but uh, I, I think clearly she's going to win. I appreciate very much your time. We have come up at the end of the hour. Thank you so much. Very interesting. Uh, Paul Glastris, editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly, a very good uh, informative uh, journal. There are very few informative journals out there. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. Do you know this song here? I'm not going to tell you. Hey, thanks for listening. Email me, Bert at BertCohen.com. Thanks so much.